it is not unusual to be aware of how another person affects my life. I know, for instance, that raising two children has drastically reduced the amount of disposable income in my bank account, especially having just sent one off to college. Or, I should say, it, it's all but eliminated all disposable income in my bank account. I'm also recently returned from being away during which time someone managed to get my credit card number and purchase something off of Amazon. Their thefts affected how much time I have, how to devote, um, having to devote to contacting Amazon and the credit card company to dispute the charge and then to contact the credit card company again to dispute it again because they denied the claim. People around us and people throughout the world that we will never see affect us. They say and do things that bring us joy and they say and do things that give us headaches. We mostly remember the headaches. But something we don't often factor into the equation, something we all too easily overlook, is the effect that we have on others. That person whose bumper you rode all the way to 390 because they were doing 45 and a 55, they were frustrating you. What effect did your driving have on them? That person you were short with at the store or on the phone because they couldn't answer your question, even though it's their job to be able to answer your question, it frustrated you. How did your frustration affect them? Or how about having to wear masks to church and sit six feet apart, having to sanitize your hands as if you are a walking contagion? Frustrated anybody? Irritated anybody? How is your handling of COVID-19 making it easier or harder for those around you? We're living in a weird time. And if you spend as much time behind a computer as I have over the past six months, you're probably ready as I am to throw every screen in your home out the window. I'm tired of looking at screens. I am so glad to see all of your smiling faces or at least your smiling eyes. I can't imagine, however, how this has affected extroverts throughout the world. I'm an introvert and I've gotten sick and tired of not being around people. It's a strange thing. And yet, while I speak, there are those who are watching from their screens at home through this magical camera, whose only experience and connection with church these days is, is that screen. Not everything looks the same from where you and I sit, wherever we are. Over the next several months, we're going to continue learning how to be the church, how to live as a community. It's going to require all of us all the more to recognize and to wrestle with how we affect those around us. This is the reality that Paul lays out here in his letter to the Romans, which he places completely in the context of love. As far as we know, they were not facing a pandemic when Paul is writing. 
Nevertheless, it is clear that they are struggling with what it means to live as the body of Christ. Love, writes Paul, is without deceit. It calls us to a filial love, the love between the Father and the Son, a love where the needs of others, even the needs of strangers, are placed far above our own. Among the characteristics of the relation of love towards others that Paul lays out, which is the life to which we are called in Christ, chief among them, says Paul, is to have the same mind toward each other. And when Paul says to be of the same mind, he expressly means to have the mind of Christ. That's the only way that we can be of the same mind. It means that we have to set aside our own minds, setting aside what we think about each other and rather consider what others look like from the mind of Christ. We are, says Paul, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, or as one translation wonderfully puts it, do not fancy yourself sages. I often wish I had been born in Victorian England. I think they speak so, speak so much more wonderfully than we do. But last but not least, Paul tells the Romans, leave the judging to God. That's not your place. But there's also an interesting connection that is by no means obvious to modern readers here at the end of this section in Paul's letters. It's a connection that those hearing his letter for the first time would have been able to make, but it's not fleshed out, so there's no way for us modern readers to know what's really going on. It's regarding that whole business about heaping coals on the heads of our enemies, which at first sounds like Paul is being a bit snarky, not unlike what we read in Psalm 140, where the psalmist invites God to dump burning coals on the heads of his enemies. But there's a different connotation here in Paul's letter to the Romans, which is made clear by the context he provides of servitude toward one's enemies. Among the Egyptian people in Paul's day, there was a ritual practice that a person would undergo to bring about healing to a fractured relationship, an act of contrition, an act of penance. To perform this, a person would put a basin on their heads, which would then be filled by an elder with burning coals which they would walk around with so as to amend what had been broken by their sin. And what Paul seems to be saying is that showing generosity and doing good to one who has harmed you, giving them food and drink, could actually open the other person to the healing of Christ who restores what is broken, who mends what we break. In essence, by extending grace and hospitality toward those who do us harm, we perform the penance that they need, enabling the other person to imagine themselves as transformed by the grace, love, and forgiveness of which we are called to be conduits. In other words, through us, Christ opens the other person to see who they have become offering them the opportunity to become who they are in Christ, to receive love and forgiveness. 
This, says Paul, is the effect that we are to have on others. We are not to return evil for evil. Rather, we are to live at peace with everyone, blessing even those who curse us. This is tough, is it not? Just think about what Paul is suggesting. He is suggesting that we are to live as though everyone else matters more than me, more than you. And as the gospel hymn that Susan just wonderfully reflected on for us, it's nothing short of taking up our crosses and dying daily on them. Wow. First Sunday back, and it's like we picked up right where we left off in Lent, on our way to the cross in Jerusalem with Jesus. But fortunately, the Apostle Peter is ever ready to say what we're all thinking. No thanks, Jesus. That's not how it's going to go down. Stop talking about crosses and dying on them. That's too political, Jesus. These are stately affairs. What has the cross to do with your kingdom? And Jesus says to all of us, as he said to Peter, you can walk in the way of love and abide the politics of the cross. Or Satan's right over there. You can go stand with him. Our lives are to be handed over to the way of love modeled on the cross of Christ. Where our speaking, what we speak, what we say and do, compels others to receive the abundant grace and forgiveness effected by the cross of Christ. It's easy. It's easy to look around the world or on the screens that are all too often in front of our faces and see how we are being compelled by others towards hate and violence. But what is our effect? What are our own lives encouraging others to say and do? Amen.